Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, before I um, take a couple minutes to talk about the sermon, I just want to take a couple minutes to say that uh, on Friday, um, a few of the staff here at the church uh, went to World Relief, the World Relief offices up in Albany Park, um, to attend a thank you uh, party, a thank you lunch that they put on for the church um, as a way of thanking us for um, the gift that we gave to them so that they can have ESL classes uh, for a year. And I have to say it was really moving uh, to be there. When we got there, um, six or eight of the students got up and read papers that they had um, written in English, uh, talking about how important learning English was to them and uh, how grateful they were for all of us. Uh, and then the staff shared the same kind of stuff. And it was really moving to be there. And I was, I was happy for us and happy to be part of it. And so I just want to say one more time, uh, on behalf of World Relief, um, on behalf of the staff there and that refugee population that they work with, thank you for your generosity. Um, it is a great way, um, among many great ways, for us to love some of the most um, vulnerable of our neighbors. So thank you. Um, <clears throat> we're getting towards the end of the summer and therefore towards the end uh, of our summer series on the fruit of the Spirit, um, the fruit of the Spirit of the Virtues that the Apostle Paul writes about in his letter to the Galatian church. He says this is uh, the kind of thing that grows in the lives of those who follow Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is the life that we are called to look like to live as followers of Jesus and happily. This is the kind of fruit that he gives to us, not just for ourselves, um, but for the good of the whole world. I need people who look like that list of virtues all around me all the time. And so do you. Uh, and so does this hurting, anxious, and broken world. So this morning we're going to talk uh, about gentleness. And I'm going to read from Matthew 11 for us. It's uh, a teaching from Jesus in which he talks about his own character, what he is like. Uh, and I have to say that it doesn't start out in ways that we might uh, typically describe as gentle. So I'm going to read from Matthew 11 for us, verses 16 through 30, and you can follow along uh, in the word of worship where it's printed, or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Matthew 11. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. 
At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, as we often acknowledge, you know uh, exactly where every one of us is this morning, the state of our hearts and minds. Um, You know those of us who feel really close to you and are ready to hear from you and those of us who feel far from you um, and wish we weren't here. You know those of us who aren't even sure why we're here, who feel distracted. You know those of us who are in deep pain and you know those of us who feel joy, those of us who are discontent, those of us who are contented. You know every place where we are, inside of faith and outside of faith and just barely clinging to faith. And so we ask that you would meet every one of us in this gracious invitation from Jesus to rest, that you would show us that rest again, and that you would change us by his grace. And we prayed in his name. Amen. Jesus, uh, in this teaching, begins with a question. And in order to hear this question the right way, we need to listen to hear the deep frustration in that question. We need to hear the desperation Jesus feels when he asks it. We need to hear in this question that note of sadness that is there when Jesus asks it. He asks, but to what shall I compare this generation? I mean, Jesus wants to communicate that he is grasping, that he is so confounded that he wants to find just the right analogy to describe the people that he's speaking to. Now, like so many of Jesus' questions, of course, this one is a rhetorical question. He will answer his own question in a minute. But in order for us to understand his answer, we need to understand why Jesus asks it in the first place. And it's pretty simple to get at why he is asking this question. Since his baptism, he has been announcing the coming of the kingdom of God. He is announcing that the rule of God has arrived. Now, each of the gospel writers make that clear in their own way, and Matthew does it among the simplest of all of them by saying back in chapter 4 that after Jesus was baptized and tempted in the wilderness, he began to preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So now for months, maybe for more than a year, Jesus has been telling the people of Galilee Um, that the kingdom of of heaven has arrived, that the, the rule of God is here. This thing that they had waited for so long, it has finally arrived. And Jesus has been preaching about it. He's been using his voice to announce the kingdom, but he's also been using his actions. He's been healing people. 
healing people who had lifelong diseases. He restored sight to the blind. He has given voices back to the mute. He's delivered people from oppression. He's fed people. He's raised a little girl from the dead. And along with all of these mighty works that he has been doing, he has been feasting and he's been partying and he's been celebrating with all kinds of very unlikely folks. All of these together, these mighty works, as Jesus calls them, they weren't just window dressing for the announcement that the kingdom of God has come. They were evidence that he was telling the truth that the kingdom of God has come. All of these mighty works, all of the feasting, all of the partying, all of the celebrating, these things were the physical evidence that God's kingdom had come. It's like Jesus is saying, this is what it looks like when God comes to his people, come and join this party. But something is off. Some people had decided to follow Jesus for sure. They were common people mostly, everyday people, farmers and fishermen and tax collectors and prostitutes. But for the most part, Jesus had been met with indifference from these crowds, uh, especially when he wasn't performing big miracles for them. And Jesus was beginning to be met with growing opposition from the religious insiders of the day, from, from the religious gatekeepers. And that's the source of Jesus' frustration. He's in his part of the country. He is among his own people by blood. And they are largely uninterested in him. And that is why he asks the question, to what shall I compare this generation? How can I describe these people? And he says they're like children in the marketplaces, calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. I love this image of kids playing together. Jesus evokes this image of a bunch of kids who are playing games together, and all of them have agreed that they're going to play a certain game. But there is this one kid, this one recalcitrant kid who will not play by the rules. He doesn't dance when they tell him to dance. He doesn't sing when they tell him to sing. He's doing his own thing. He is doing a brand new thing. And his resistance makes the rest of the kids on that playground really angry. And, of course, in this image, Jesus is the recalcitrant kid. He's the one child on the playground who will not play by the rules. He will not do what they want him to do. He is not meeting their expectations of what a good kid should be. He is not announcing this kingdom in the way that they had hoped it would be announced. He is not describing a kingdom that looks like the kind of kingdom that these kids wanted. He's not their puppet. They don't like the way that he plays, and so they pout, and they exclude him, and they decide to ignore him and ostracize him. It is this potent little parable. And Jesus expands it. He brings up John the Baptist. If, if, if you know anything about John the Baptist, you know he was a, a very serious and austere man, lived out in the desert, ate locusts and wild honey, wore camel hair, called people to repent in the fieriest way. And Jesus says, this people, this generation, these kids on the playground, they look at a guy like John and they say, he's nuts. He must have a demon. They look at me and say, a glutton and a drunkard. See, here's what Jesus is saying. 
He's saying that the kingdom of God has come and that it has turned the games that these kids were playing inside out. It has turned all of their expectations on their head. Jesus is telling them about a new way of living and a new way of being, but they won't hear it because they are a shifty, restless bunch. The kingdom doesn't come like they want it to come. If it doesn't require of them what they want it or expect it to require, if it doesn't look like they want it to look, then they will not have any of it. So they keep playing the games they want to play, and they keep finding ways to shut Jesus out. And so Jesus has a word for them, and that word is woe. It is a word of sadness and pity. And he starts naming names. He starts naming all of these lakeside towns that he has just been through, these places that the Gospel writer Matthew tells us are where most of his mighty works had been done. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. And he holds up then these notorious pagan cities like Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, cities that had horrible reputations among God's people. And Jesus tells them, on the day of judgment, it's going to be way better for these notorious cities than it will be for the cities of the people of God. Jesus says if, if he had done the mighty things that he had done in those lakeside towns, in those notorious cities, they would have repented long ago. Church, I have to tell you, these are some of the most sober and serious words that Jesus ever said. He says, you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. Now, some of you may be thinking, this seems kind of weird in a sermon about gentleness. (laughs) And so here's what I can say about that, and I'm going to tell you it's something that I need to hear all of the time. And that is that the Jesus that we have just heard is the Jesus who really is. We don't get to cut and paste him into a fantasy Jesus. We don't get to customize him to make him the kind of Jesus that we are more comfortable with. And I hope that this is obvious, but let me, let me say it to make sure that it's obvious. This is exactly the point that Jesus is trying to make. We played our tune for you, Jesus, but you didn't dance like we wanted. We started our song, Jesus, but you didn't sing the song we wanted you to sing. And church, this is important because unless people like us are willing to number ourselves with that shifty, restless bunch of kids, these fussy kids on the playground, unless we can say that's who we are, then the real rest that Jesus is about to offer will not penetrate our lives. If we cannot get to the place where we admit that we're like the crowds who are restless with Jesus, that we're like those people who want to sing our own songs and dance our own dances, then this Jesus who is gentle and lowly in heart, he will remain a mystery to us. He will be like a phantom to us. It goes to, it goes, just makes sense, right? Because if we already have our lives figured out and we know how to make all of the pieces of our lives come together without him, and what we want is a Jesus who will just kind of be present and give us a little holy confirmation and a little wink to the life that we're living, and if that's how everything is working out, then what kind of rest do we need? Of course, none of us would really describe our life that way. 
but we pretend. I pretend. And pretending that's how my life is, that everything's figured out, that everything's sorted out, that I know what's going on. It only leads me to a deeper and more painful tiredness. So let me say something that I think is true about being a human being. I just think it's true for those of us who've been Christians for a long time, those of us who aren't Christians, those of us who aren't exactly sure what we believe. This is just true about what it is to be human. It's the the source of our deepest restlessness. The source of that deep tiredness that we feel with and in life comes from wanting and trying to make our way through life on our own terms, by ourselves. The source of our deepest unease and unsettledness and restlessness and tiredness comes from trying to make way through life on our own terms and by ourselves. Church, this leaves us a frustrated, tired, fussy people who have very little to give for others. And I think that there's a lot of reasons that that's true. Let me just suggest a couple. First, Because this view of the world is essentially self-oriented. It is an essentially selfish view of the world. And that never, ever works out for anybody, ever. It is doomed to fail from the start simply because it would require that everyone around me shares my view of my life and how my life should work out. And that never happens. And you know what happens, though, when we bump into people, when we feel that we have got it all figured out and we know how life should be, and when we bump into people who run up against our view of life, it leads to all kinds of stuff, all kinds of trouble in our lives. We get angry, and we get desperate, and we get fearful, and we try to control people by force, or we try to control them with shame, or we try to control them with guilt. Or we try to make them pay by gossiping about them or doing some other thing we think will hurt them. Or maybe we isolate ourselves from others and then we're not only tired, we're lonely. I think another reason humans become restless living life on our own is because humans aren't made to live like that. We are made for deep communion. Church, we're made for life together. We are made to live a life of communion with others, with the created order around us, with God, even with ourselves. And when we live in that kind of deep communion, we grow and we flourish. Of course there's obstacles when we live life that way. Of course we get frustrated. Of course we wish that things were different when we live life that way. But all of that is part of what God uses to grow us into the human being that we were made to be. Living life alone, by our own set of rules, living life essentially for ourselves, it's like holding breath underwater. I mean, you can do it for a while, but it is not the life that you were made for. And if you don't come up for air pretty quick, things get bad. So, it's for people like you and me that Jesus stops and he prays this amazing prayer. Jesus prays, thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. I mean, if I can paraphrase Jesus here, what he's doing is thanking God for the grace of cutting through all of our games, 
of cutting through all of our restless dancing, our restless self-oriented living, all of that stuff where we think we've got it all figured out. He is thanking God for cutting through all of that and revealing what he's really like. When you see what Jesus is doing here, he has to speak the word of woe to snap us awake so that we will look up and we will hear the gracious invitation that is coming. Church, there's no other way for us to get there. Jesus says no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and the ones to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In other words, what Jesus is saying is... To anyone who has ears to hear, he says, listen, if you want to know what God's like and you want to know what this world is like and you want to know how the pieces of life fit together and how you're to be related to the created order and the people around you and how you're to be related to God, then you're going to have to stop singing your own songs and you're going to have to stop dancing your own dances and you're going to have to turn your gaze to the Son for a minute because he is the one who knows the Father. And When our gaze is finally rested on him, when we finally look at him, here's what he says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Jesus' words are at the heart of the Christian faith. He offers rest. Rest. Rest from trying to make up our own rules. Rest from trying to make life work on our own terms. Rest from trying to control everyone and everything around us. Rest from isolating ourselves. Rest from guilt. Rest from shame. He is inviting us to come up for air. Some of you might know uh, John Bunyan's allegory from the 15th century, The Pilgrim's Progress. There's this amazing passage in that uh, work. It's actually, I think, the climax of the book. And I want to read it for you. It goes like this. Up this way, then, did burdened Christian run, and not without some trace of difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus until he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and below, a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosened from off his shoulders and fell from his back and began to tumble and continued to do so until it reached the sepulcher where it fell in, and I saw it no more. You know, that's obviously a beautiful reflection on Jesus' invitation to rest, to have burdens be shared and removed. But it's also a beautiful picture of the reality on which Jesus' promise of rest is grounded because Jesus' cross and resurrection church, they stand forever as the guarantee of the promise of rest because the cross is where Jesus takes all of our restless games all of our fussy, fidgeting games, all of our tired, bone-weary tiredness on his back, it's where he takes all of that on his back, and his grave is where they were defeated and left behind forever when he was raised to new life. 
To be a Christian is to cling to that reality by faith. To be a Christian is to repent of that sin of trying to live life on our own and to let go of all of the pain and the shame and the trouble that has caused and to cling to the risen Jesus who offers us rest. And that rest looks like something. I mean, Jesus is really clear about this. It looks like being a people who take on his yoke and learn from him. Taking the rest that Jesus offers doesn't mean that we become free of any and all obligations. It isn't to enter into a a kind of nothingness. No, entering into the kingdom of God requires that we learn from Jesus what it looks like to be members of that kingdom, to be citizens in that world. It means that we learn from Jesus to give up the old songs and the old dances and learn these new beautiful songs and these new intricate dances that he is teaching us. And he says, my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. And it sounds so good. And so we ask, you know, Jesus, how can that be true? And Jesus answers, because I am gentle and lowly in heart. So we finally come to that fruit of gentleness. But in a way, it is what we have been talking about all along. Because Jesus' gentleness is most clearly shown in this gracious offer of rest. His gentleness is shown in a hand that reaches carefully and patiently down to lift people like us up for a breath of air. His gentleness is shown in binding us to himself. I mean, that's what a yoke is. His gentleness is shown in that he bears up with us. And gives us not just a new life to live, but a new way to live it, which is alongside him. And church, he offers all of this, as Isaiah puts it so beautifully in the Old Testament lesson we heard this morning. He offers all of this to a bunch of bruised reeds. Broken plants. If there's a better image to describe how we feel a lot of the time, I don't know what it is. Jesus doesn't break bruised reeds. He will not break us. He binds us up and he heals us. This is Jesus' gentleness. And this is the fruit he gives to us for our good and for the good of this broken world. We experience this gentleness. We are made objects of this gentleness as we learn from Jesus and as we walk with him. And that gives us all of the power, all of the resources that we need to reach out in gentleness to the places and to the people around us everywhere who are themselves underwater and who need air and who need rest. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask really simply that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would work this gentleness in us. The true thing, not any kind of weird substitute, but the true thing that you would work gentleness in us as individuals and as a church, that our families and our homes and our workplaces, and in particular this place here, Covenant, that it would become a place increasingly of rest where people are able to breathe, where people are able to hear this good news that Jesus has done everything for them, that he gives them new life, that he gives them a new way to live. Help us to experience the gentleness of your son so that we can reach out into this broken world. 
And we pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.